Uh, I'm going to read Exodus 16, uh, 1 through 12, and then 17, 1 through 7. Uh, Israel in the wilderness. This is the word of the Lord. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin. Um, let me just stop there. That's an ominous start. Um, sin is just a Hebrew word. It has no connection with our English word sin, though it ends up being quite appropriate, as we'll find out in just a second. Um, from which is, bet- uh, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And then chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. The water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. All right, so today we had a little two-week hiatus from our series on Moses, his life, and now we jump back into that, and we find Israel in its second stage of its journey, right? It goes from Egypt to the promised land, but between Egypt and the promised land, there is the wilderness. 
And they will end up in this wilderness for 40 years, turns out. And it will be a time of testing. It'll be a time of preparation, uh, a time of stripping them of certain things, uh, and them learning all sorts of lessons. Of course, Jesus himself, at the beginning of his ministry, spent 40 days in the wilderness. And that, that in the same way, was a time of, of testing and preparation. And so what I want to do this morning is uh, talk about the wilderness. Okay, I want to talk about Israel's wilderness, but I also want to talk about our own experiences of wilderness, the desert. And I want to talk about um, the kind of work that God tends to do in the wilderness. And in one sense, this is not a prescriptive passage, right? That's just describing what happened to Israel. But when you look at this, you look at what happened to Jesus in the wilderness, I think we can say there are certain things that God tends to do in the wilderness that can't be done in Egypt, can't be done in the promised land, can only be done in the wilderness. And so uh, I want to talk about the wilderness today. So before we jump into the text, let me just paint for you uh, the landscape of the wilderness. Okay, you already know it, but uh, let me show you this shot right here. There it is. Oh, it's not very clear. Okay, but anyways, that is literally the wilderness of Sinai. That's the Sinai Desert. Uh, and here's what the wilderness is all about, okay? Here's what the desert's all about. It's about the usual blessings and provisions being stripped away from us, right? The things we normally can count on are kind of pulled away, and we're left without something that we're used to. So for Israel, uh, food in this case, water, right? The basic necessities. Um, probably shelter. Um, it probably got hot sometimes, so the shade wasn't quite as much. It got really cold at night. Shelter, protection. These things that they were in some ways used to are stripped away, okay? And that's what the wilderness is about in our lives. Something that we thought we could count on, something that we're used to, gets stripped away. Um, that can be anything. It could be safety. Um, it could be Finances can all of a sudden dry up. We even use that language, right? It's a desert time financially. Uh, a vocation can be pulled away from us. When a job can be pulled away. Uh, a relationship can be pulled away or can get really hard, right? A marriage that was pretty good all of a sudden isn't so good. And the comfort of that is, is stripped away from us. Uh, sometimes the, the wilderness can be uh, what's stripped away is something emotional. We can go through periods of intense anxiety or depression or, or fear or loneliness. Sometimes what's pulled away is uh, a usual sense of certainty. We usually have a sense of what the future is going to look like, and something goes down in our lives, and all of a sudden, everything is uncertain, and everything feels up for grabs, Right? The wilderness can look so different in different ways, but something that we tended to count on is, is taken away, is, is stripped away, and we're left trying to figure out how to sort through life without that. Sometimes the wilderness, we go through long wilderness seasons. Sometimes we go through really short wilderness seasons. Sometimes part of life is great, but there's a part of our life where we're experiencing wilderness in this area of our lives, but not in this area of our life, right? We've all been through wilderness seasons. Uh, and so what's, what's true of all of us in this room right now is um, you are either in a wilderness season right now? If you're not, you will be at some point. Uh, and if you're neither of those two, I mean, you will be that second one, but if not, you have a very close friend or family member who right now is in the thick of the wilderness. Right? We all feel the wilderness in some way all the time. And so as I kind of just walk through this, um, some of you, this will be like, man, this is me. I mean, you are saying 
exactly what I'm going through right now. Um, some of you will be thinking about times in the past and, you'll, and, it be, and be processing, what was going on there? When looking back at that really hard time, what do I see now in hindsight? And some of you will be thinking of your spouse or your, your a family member or, or friend, someone who's going through it right now. And all of those are, are perfectly good ways um, to be thinking about this today, right? So I want to talk about the wilderness, and I want to talk about the kinds of things that God is up to in the wilderness that, again, don't happen in Egypt or the Promised Land. And what I noticed this week um, that was kind of struck me most is um, putting these two passages together, and there's, there's a word that shows up in both passages, and it's, it's the word tested, okay? And what's, this is the theme I want to work with What's going on in the wilderness is there's a testing going on, okay? So look at verse 4 of chapter 16. This is God speaking. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for, for, for that day. In this way, I will test them. So God is testing the Israelites in the wilderness. But if you go to chapter 7, in verse 2, Moses says to the people, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test, right? And then in verse 7, it says, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. So what you have going on in the wilderness is God is testing Israel in some way, and Israel is testing God in some way. And that's what happens in wilderness seasons. And I want to talk about that today and just kind of tease us out uh, for them and, and for us today, all right? I want to look at this testing that goes on, and some of it is good and some of it is not, as we'll see, okay? But let's, let's actually start, I want to start um, with the Israelites' testing of God and how we tend to test God in wilderness seasons, all right? So let's think about Israel, right? They were in Egypt. Now, they've been out for a couple months. Uh, it's a brand new day, right? They've seen some amazing things, but they're also in the middle of nowhere, and all the usual stuff is gone. And they don't know this God all that well, okay? This is always still kind of a, a new friend for them, say that. And they're trying to figure this out. And what they do in this season is they test God. And I, I would I'd say, as I look at these pastors, there's, there's two forms that their testing takes, okay? The first is in this word that I've talked a lot about over the years. It's the word grumbling, okay? Lots of grumbling from Israel in the wilderness. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, right? Chapter 7, verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled uh, against uh, Moses and the Lord. And this is obviously what we're all tempted to do when we're in hard seasons. We're tempted to grumble. We're tempted to whine. We're tempted to complain. Whatever word you want to use, grumbling is a good one because it actually is like it sounds like the thing it is, right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. Um, so I, I want to talk about grumbling for a second. And what's really important is to distinguish grumbling from biblical lament, okay? And lament is a very biblical posture. And you read the Psalms and you see lament all over the place. And lament is rooted in this deep down trust in God who is faithful and good, and his goodness is running after us, and yet looks at circumstances that call all that into question, still hold on to his faithfulness, and just cry out honestly, God, what is going on? Why is this happening? It's this honest, beautiful, faithful expression of loss, pain, suffering, frustration, 
clinging to the faithfulness of God. That is what lament is, and it's a beautiful thing, okay? Grumbling is something different. Grumbling, I would, as I read this passage, is fundamentally rooted in cynicism, okay? It's rooted in despair, but it's, it's rooted in a cynical view of God. Let me, just read, let me read this again. Look at chapter 16, verse 3. The Israelites said to them, listen to the cynicism. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. There's some revisionist history, right? I mean, really? <laughs> Israel's starting to look, I mean, Egypt's looking really good two months later, okay? Wow. Like, um, wasn't that good, guys, I promise. It was a little bit worse than that. You're starting to paint this, right? Um, but here's the cynicism. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death, Okay? Look at 17.4. Uh, is that right? No, no. Oh, uh, 17.3. Uh, they said, why did you bring us out, up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Okay? What a cynical view. You, you've, you, God, you just brought us out here. To, you, you rescued us. You kind of you know, gave us a good moment there. And, but you've just brought us out to, to, to die of hunger and thirst. Meaning... You don't care for us. You don't love us. We can't trust you. you. You had it out for us from the very beginning, didn't you, God? It's a very cynical view. And um, that's always the temptation, isn't it, in wilderness seasons of our lives, is to, to have this, this cynical edge that says, God, you don't, you don't love me. You don't care for me. It's kind of that I knew it kind of feeling, right? Like, I, I knew it. I knew, I knew this is, I, I kind of got my hopes up, but you're screwing with me. You're, you're out to get me. And that's what we feel. And, you know, it's easy to say it when you're in a good time. Don't do that. But when you're in a hard season and things pile up over time, you start to feel that, God, I feel like you're just kind of messing with me. I feel like you're, you're out to get me. And that's the temptation. That's, that's a way we test is we, we grumble. We get cynical about God's, what God's heart for us is. Um, this is, is precisely what, what Satan tried to tempt Jesus with in his wilderness experience. Let me remind you of, remember, uh, Jesus' experience in the wilderness, his baptism, right? And God says, you are my beloved son. I love you. I am well pleased with you. This beautiful moment, this expression of, of God's goodness and approval and affection for Jesus. And then right after that, he sends him out into the wilderness, right, for 40 days, no food, uh, radically different circumstance, okay? Starving, very hungry. He looks around him, and there is nothing in his circumstances that would tell him that the word God spoke to him at his baptism is true. Nothing circumstantially. In fact, just the opposite. It looks like he's been abandoned. And the tempter, Satan, comes in each temptation with these words. If you are God's son, right, then do this. If, if you're God's son... And God told him he was his son, meaning something either like, maybe you're not God's son, or if you're God's son, what kind of a dad throws his son into the wilderness for 40 days, right, to start? What, what, kind, of a, what kind of a dad? Well, that's not a very loving father, right? You might, you might want to take matters into your own hands, Jesus, but clearly you can't trust this, this God. And that's the temptation of the wilderness, right? We get cynical about God's heart, about God's motivations. We kind of start to go, I think he's out to get me rather than, oh, he loves me, he cares about me, he won't forsake me. 
And you see that in, in Israel's story. And then the other thing I notice about Israel's testing, let's look at chapter 17. Just the way it ends in verse 7. Uh, they call the place Masa, uh, he called the place Masa and Meribah. Uh, interesting, because the Israelites quarreled. And because they tested the Lord, saying, and here's the test, is the Lord among us or not? God, are you, are you in this or not? Are you here or not? And implicit in that, I think, is kind of a demand that says, if you're in this, show us. And show us kind of the way we'd like to be shown, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's an implicit, God, you, you got you to gotta do something here. You've got you to gotta give us a sign. You've got you to gotta show us something. You've got to create some water here or we're not going to buy this. And so it's kind of this, this posture that says, um, God, you've you got to start meeting the expectations I have uh, in the ways that I would want them, right? If, if, you, if you love me, if you're really in this, I need you to, you know, you better fix my marriage, right? If, 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 if you really love me, you, you'd give me a job. I could really use a job. If you, if you loved me, um, you'd make this thing go away. You, you'd give me sleep. I haven't been asleep for six months, whatever it is, right? And that's so natural and human. God, God, this is what love would look like for me in this circumstance. Love me in this way, and I'll see that you, that, that you love me. And that's what, that's what we do. That's, what, that's the, the heart work that happens, right, in, in the wilderness. This is actually uh, right at the, the heart of Jesus' second temptation, is it, this precise thing. It's this, this demand for God to show up in the ways that we think he needs to show up in order to be a faithful God. So let me just read you the second temptation in the wilderness. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he quotes scripture, God will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, what's the temptation there? He said, if you're really God's son, you're probably wondering, there's a way you can find out. Jump, okay? And God's going to rescue you. And you'll have this profound experience. You'll have this miraculous sign that shows you that God really does love you and cares for you. You shouldn't have to rely on this word he spoke 40 days ago, which feels like an eternity past probably for Jesus. You can have definitive proof that he loves you. Okay, that's the temptation right there. It's a demand for a miraculous sign that shows God's love. And what is Jesus' response? And this is the great example for us. Jesus answered him. It is also written, quoting from Deuteronomy, uh, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, in essence, says, why would I need to do that? God told me he loved me. Okay, he, he, I heard him say, you are my son, I love you. Uh, that's all I need. I don't need to test that. I trust in his word. I trust in the promise he gave me 40 days ago or however long it was ago. Um, why would I need this miraculous sign? But that's the, that's the temptation, right, in hard times. It's the grumbling. It's the cynicism. It's the demand that God act in a certain way. And all that is so perfectly natural and normal and human. And yet Jesus fights us, invites us into something quite different, which is, which is trust in the words and promises of God in the midst of circumstances that would seem to call those into question. All right, so that is Israel uh, testing the Lord. Anybody ever done that before? Or no, am I, am I speaking? Yeah, okay, okay, good. Just making sure I'm on here. Um, 
let's look at the other side of, of God testing Israel. And, and we need to be careful about how we talk about this, but let's just kind of tease this out. And what is this testing about? What's God up to in the wilderness for Israel and p- potentially for us? So let me just kind of look at uh, verse 4, chapter 16, verse 4. That's where that word comes. Um, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. God says this, in this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So that tells me the testing has something to do with obedience, with following God's instructions, right? Let me, I want to take you on the screen to, to Deuteronomy 18, which is one of the most important chapters, uh, I think, in the Old Testament. But it's Moses at the, at the kind of edge of the promised land. Now, uh, reminding them of their story and this very story. And he says some things that, are, that I want to kind of tease out. Here's what he says. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So the testing has something to do, will they continue to obey? The testing also has something to do with being humbled, right? He goes on, though. This is really important. Uh, Chapter, uh, verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So there's a disciplining, not a punishment, but a, a discipling going on in the wilderness. But what's important to notice, it's the discipline of a father with a son, not a, not a master with a slave. This is a father who's, who loves his children and is, is discipling, disciplining them into something good. He goes on, uh, this is verse 16, he gave you manatee in the wilderness to test you, and this is really key, so that in the end it might go well with you, okay? Testing is not fun. What we're learning, though, is God's, whatever this is, is coming out of this, this love for us with this ultimate de- desire that so that in the end... It would go well with you. God is saying, I've taken you out of Egypt. I want things in the promised land to go well for you. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to lead you through this wilderness season because there's some things that I want to shape and teach and develop so that when you enter the promised land, become a nation of your own, it will go well with you. And that going well very much was determined by whether or not they learned the lessons of the wilderness. But God's heart in it is all for their good, okay? Uh, In the New Testament, Hebrews says it this way, God disciplines us, right, for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. He is shaping us into people who are like him. Of course, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Just ask my kids. But it's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, okay? So this loving, good hand of testing, disciplining, humbling, teaching obedience. This is what God is up to so often in our lives, right? And let me just kind of, none of this, you've heard all this before, but just the landscape of God's testing. Here's how it goes for Israel, okay? Here's the first thing. I already said this. First, they're stripped of the usual provisions, in their case, food and water. And I just want you to think about something like food and water. You know, they were in Egypt, okay? So Egypt is an agricultural society. They're used to watching food, right? You, they watch people, um, you know, spread 
grain, and then food grows from the ground, and it sprouts up, and that was, as de- you could depend on that. I mean, besides times of famine, right? Seasonally, you just know it's coming. Food is, it's an agricultural society. They're used to seeing food come from the ground. All of a sudden, they're in the desert. Turns out it's really hard to farm in the desert, okay? Not quite as nice as the Nile Delta, right? This usual man-made, this thing that we can do, we can't do it anymore. And then the water, okay, they had the great Nile River. It was this utterly consistent source of water, one of the greatest sources of water in the world at the time. Turns out the desert is a little bit less watery than the Nile, right? All of a sudden, these things that they could depend on are gone, and their, their ways of making it are gone. And this is what God does in the wilderness. He strips away kind of the man-made, the human ingenuity that we have and the the things that we could count on that are things that we can do are gone. They're not working anymore. We can't make it happen anymore. That's what he does. He, He strips away, he peels these things away. But then what he does, what he does for them is he provides his provision and in this case, in some very unexpected and very unusual ways, right? Strips them of the, the kind of human-based provision, but then he provides his God-based provision. First, manna, right? Look at verse 4 again, uh, the beginning of verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Okay? They know bread from the earth. They've seen bread from the earth. This is not that. This is bread that comes from heaven, a utterly unexpected place. Who's ever seen bread come from heaven? It comes from the earth. But I'm going to provide you in a very unexpected, very God-centered, God-initiated way, right? So that it would be unmistakable that the source was God. In Egypt, God provided them with bread, but it's easy to think, oh, that's just how life works, Right? Agriculture, it just works that way. God would do something like, no, this is so clearly from God in, in the wilderness. Verse 13, take a look at verse 13. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning, I'm focusing on the man here, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was, right? We've, we've never seen anything like, we've never seen this kind of provision before. This is unexpected. It's unknown. It's mysterious. It's from God. What is it? And then if you go to verse 31, the people of Israel called the bread, what's it called? Manna. And if you look at your footnote, it says manna sounds like the Hebrew for what is it? <laughs> That's what manna means. Manna means what is it? That's what we call this bread. This is bread from heaven. This is God-produced bread. This is something we've never seen before. This is a provision that we never would have seen in Egypt. We'll never see again in the promised land. But in the wilderness, wow, what is it is showing up, okay? And then you go to the water, right, in, verse, in chapter 17. Water from a rock, okay? What could be less watery than a rock, Right? So much less watery than the great Nile. And yet God, miraculously, through the staff of Moses, provides some sort of, you know, water from this rock. But this is what God does in the wilderness. He 
Uh, he provides in, in unexpected ways, surprising ways, right? Ways we were not anticipating in such ways that it's clear that it is God who is providing, that, w- that we, we've been stripped of our abilities to provide. And so when provision is found, we realize this is unmistakably you, God. This isn't something I did. This isn't something humans did. This, you are showing up in ways that I couldn't do for myself, right? And why is he doing that? The goal of all this is what I've said a couple weeks ago, so that you will know that I am the Lord, right? So that you will recognize who I am, my ability to provide for you, who I am in your life, that, that you need me more than your next meal, okay? Look at verse 12. He says, I was, as I was reading, I was really, he says it like three times in this passage, but verse 12, I have heard the grumbling at twilight, you will eat meat. In the morning, you will be filled with bread. Here it is. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Okay? I strip you of the man-made solutions. I provide in unexpected ways. And the result of that is you know that I am the Lord. And what I love about this passage in particular, and often the way God works in the wilderness, is God's provision, um, as many of you know, it, uh, it requires ongoing dependence on him in the wilderness, doesn't it? Right? That's, that's the key of the, with, with the manna. Uh, verse 4, the people are to gather each day and gather only enough for that day. So you can't store it up. Right? You just gather one day at a time. Look at verse 19 of chapter 16. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Shocking. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Wow. On the sixth day, they gathered gathered twice as much, and shocking, it didn't spoil, right, on Sabbath days. Okay? So miracle bread, it's there in the morning. It melts away by afternoon. Heat melts it away. And if you store more than you can, it it spoils for the next day. (laughs) Okay? Very clear, God teaching them day by day by day dependence. And this, as we find out in Deuteronomy, was their experience for 40 years. 40 years of day by day dependence on what is it from heaven, okay? And God never stopped providing that bread. So that is the wilderness, There's a stripping of the usual provisions, protections, blessings, whatever word you want to use, and then God provides in unexpected ways, but in ways that require ongoing dependence. It's humbling, it's disciplining, but it's kind of being forced into day-by-day dependence on God providing in His way and in His time and God proves himself faithful in ways we weren't expecting. It's a different journey than we expected. But what happens is you emerge from the wilderness um, stripped of self-sufficiency, stripped of pride, but full of faith, full of a trust in this God. And you know that he is the Lord, and there is none other. That is the testing, that is the work that can take place in the wilderness. I want to take you one one last passage. Again, this is from Deuteronomy 8. This, to me, really sums it all up. 
Um, This is what Jesus quotes to Satan in the wilderness in his testing. God humbled you, causing you to hunger, right? There's the stripping. And then feeding you with, what is it? With God's provision, which neither you nor your ancestors nor anyone had ever heard of before to teach you something. And this is the lesson of the wilderness, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the lesson. Man does live on bread. We need bread to live. But man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In this case, God's words were, I will protect you. I will lead you through the wilderness. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you. And the lesson of the wilderness is you get stripped of things like bread or relational security or financial security or certainty about the future or health or all these things, right? These get pulled away so that we could live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That that alone, his promises, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I love you, I am with you always to the very end of the age, that those become the bread that we eat, the things that our souls cling to through thick and thin. That's the lesson of the wilderness. That's what the wilderness can do through God's spirit. I want to share, I want to end by, um, I'm going to share a quote before I do that. I want to share um, a little snippet of a, a little small wilderness I experienced um, a, couple, a couple years ago. Because what I think, what, what I think um, you know, if you bring your own wilderness to this moment, um, you get to fill in the blank, <laughs> okay? For theirs was bread. But man does not live on fill in the blank. And let me just, I'm going to share my kind of fill in the blank, okay? So this is going to feel like a really small wilderness compared to what some of you are going through. I know some of you in this room, what you're going through. So a couple years ago, I just experienced this mini wilderness, uh, and it was a four-month wilderness of insomnia, okay? And I've been talking to a lot of people lately and realizing a lot of people struggle with sleep more than I thought. And again, you're going to be like, dude, four months of sleep, that's, I can, you know, whatever. But the principles apply. Um, So this is a couple years ago, um, and I think it was right at the fall, and I don't know why exactly what triggered it, but um, I just stopped being able to sleep, and it was pretty quickly. I mean, I've never been a great sleeper, but it moved from decent to really bad really fast. And for me, I never have a problem falling asleep. Um, So I'd fall asleep, and then I'd wake up at 1.30, and I I couldn't go back to sleep for the rest of the day. Um, And that's frustrating for a day. You string three or four of those in a row, um, and that can get pretty, pretty real frustrating. And um, some of you who have gone through this know how how hard that can be. And I, I started realizing, oh yeah, like soldiers are tortured with sleeplessness. Like that's a form of torture, you know. But what happens is, then you wake up, and and I look and I see the clock, which is probably a mistake, and it's 1:45. Well, then now the adrenaline rush hits you because oh, I know what this is about, and then you're done, right? Then then your body's going. And so you just have these, these pretty dark nights laying in bed, and you try reading, you try listening to podcasts, right? You try getting up and exercising, you try praying, you think, maybe if I pray, God's going to give me sleep. Um, you try gratitude, you try despair, um, but those times are some, those are, those are dark hours. The, the one to four are dark hours, um, and those, many of you know this, you, you really, you vacillate between gratitude and then uh, frustration and anger with God. 
and a deep sense of incompetence. I mean, who can't sleep? Something as basic as sleep. Like, how, how hard can it be to sleep? Well, it turns out it's really hard sometimes. Um, and it's infuriating. And, um, and <laughs> it's hard to hit the day at 6.30 with, a, you know, a family and a, and a job and um, thinking, I don't, I actually don't know if I can do that. <laughs> like, one night, sure, but like three or four nights in a row, I, I don't actually know if I can, I don't know how to live a normal day with all its responsibilities with no sleep. And uh, for me, uh, it happened to be a, a narrow window. It was a four-month, and then it kind of shifted pretty quickly. But there was a lot that God was up to in my life at that. And, and what I learned, one of the things I learned um, was precisely this. And I remember thinking, it. the lesson for me of those four months was, man does not live on sleep alone. Okay? I thought man lived on seven hours of sleep. Turns out man doesn't need to live on seven hours of sleep or eight hours of sleep. It's nice. Um, but man does not live on sleep alone. And what, what I, I walk in a day saying, I, don't, I can't do this day. I, I, can't, I can't do this. And I learned, oh, actually, you can do this. Um, you just can't do it the way you used to do it. Because you, you, you can't do it relying on your own energy and kind of, you know, ability to not get frustrated. You can't do it the way you used to do it. That's not gonna, you don't actually have the resources you used to have to go through this day, but you can do it. It's just going to be from a place of deep dependency, deep trust, <laughs> deep, God, you're going to have to kind of keep me from, you know, yelling at somebody today or, you know, whatever. Um, but you can do it. And you, there's, a, there's a humility and there's a dependency that came out of that. But this was the lesson for me. Man does not live on, on, on sleep alone. God, you, you will see me through this day. You'll see me through this season. And again, light, relatively light um, wilderness. But this is what some of you are learning right now. Man does not live on a good marriage alone. Man does not live on health alone. Man does not live on my kids being protected from the things I would really like them to be protected from alone. Uh, man does not live on work alone, right? But on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is the word that comes out of the mouth of God. Hebrews says this, be content with what you have, don't worry about the future. Why? Because God says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is the lesson of the wilderness, that we can grab onto that word and say, even if the circumstances kind of fall apart and keep falling apart, this is what I have to cling to. The words that flow out of the mouth of God, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I am with you always, and that is enough. Okay? That's, that's the work of the wilderness. I'm going to read to you a quote. I'll leave you with this. This is from C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. Many of you have read this, so you've got to understand this. This is, a, this is a senior demon writing letters to a junior demon who has a client who is a Christian, and he's trying to tempt the Christian, right? So he's, so it's, he's telling him, here's what you've got to do to this person to get him away from God. So when, when you hear the word enemy in this, it's actually God. God is the enemy from the perspective of the demon. So this is one of the letters that the demon writes. And he's talking about um, the peaks and the troughs of life, okay? I could, I'm using the word wilderness, but you can think of a trough as a wilderness. I'll leave you with this. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in, in God's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than the peaks. In fact, some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. 
Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills conform to his. And that is where the troughs come in. At first, he may give his people experiences of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand, and if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood, that's the junior demon. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Beautiful, right? That is the wilderness. Let's pray. So let me just create a moment uh, of silence here for you to just kind of sit with this. And just what, what is, you know, what do you think God is wanting to speak into you right now? And it could be related to your own life, and it might be related to, you know, a friend's or a family member's life. But what, it, what does God have for you in this? And I want to invite you, um, as Christine said earlier, receive prayer um, today if you need prayer. Um, or if you want to intercede for a friend, come to prayer and, ha- and let, let someone else intercede with you. For, for a friend or family member. So Lord, we just offer ourselves to you right now as we respond in worship and prayer. May your spirit uh, work where, uh, where we need comfort, would you comfort? Where we need courage, would you bring courage? Where we're discouraged, encourage. Um, where we're grumbling, convict and restore where we have lost faith, would you give us faith again? Lord, do in us whatever. Where we need compassion for for a friend or family member, give us compassion. Lord, we offer ourselves to you in this time. Amen. Amen. So Dave asked me to share a little bit about my wilderness that I've been in. Sorry, I have my journal here. Keep me on track. So, for the past 10 years of my life, I'm usually the one with the guitar. That's just been where the Lord's had me, and I've loved that. And the past 10 months of my life, I haven't been able to play. And that's because, like, out of nowhere, one day I, I was playing guitar, and then I, you know, I took it off, and I couldn't move my wrist anymore. And it was, like, stuck for, like, an hour. 
and I was like, this is terrifying. What's going on? And like, what happens? You know, immediately everything flashes before you and you're like, I need this. I need my, my hands, my wrists. This is my life. And, um, I immediately sought out treatment and physical therapy and it just kept getting worse, even though I completely adapted my lifestyle. You know, I wasn't cooking. My roommate was doing the dishes for me. Um, I was limiting driving. I was just, you need these for a lot of stuff. So a lot of my life had to change and it, it was definitely that thing that you count on. Now you can't count on it anymore. So what happens, I start grumbling and it's easy to grumble, especially with physical things because people ask you about it all the time because it's not really that personal. You know, if you have depression, people are like, how's your depression? You know, in a conversation on the patio, but people, you know, ask me almost every day, like, how are your wrists? How's your health? How's this? And I started kind of just getting these scripted answers of like, oh, you know, worse. Or I don't know, and I would start to grumble, you know, and I think there's a difference between honesty and like bitterness. And my heart started getting really bitter. And when that happened, the temptation comes and the enemy starts accusing God. So he started accusing God to me, saying, well, if he loved you, he'd let you worship. If he loved you, this would be gone. He'd heal you. And all these conditions, and that's not the voice of God, as we know. And so with that as well, you know, with the accusations, next comes our response to the accusations which for me was fear. Fear that I would lose my job, fear that I wouldn't be able to pay rent. It just, it spirals. You know, you can justify any fear, really, if you try. And my response to fear was self-dependency. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna go to the doctors. I'm gonna get all this taken care of because this is not gonna be my story. <laughs> I remember saying that to my best friend, like, I don't want this to be my story. And so, in my fear, I realized one night in prayer, Jesus said, I'm coming after your fear. And my unbelief. Fear is not from God. It's torment. And that's got to go. So the Lord was just telling me, it's got to go. Here's a fill in the blank for you. For God has not given us a spirit of, but of, come on. And so, you know, I get to a point where I, my emotions run high every time I, I wake up and it's really bad or every time I flare up and immediately start freaking out. And in those moments, my emotions aren't aligned with heaven. They're not aligned with the truth. They're not aligned with God's word over me. And so when that happens, you know, we can distance ourselves from God. And so I, I did that. I was kind of saying like, okay, clearly can't trust you. I can trust myself more. And, but that's not, that's not it. The enemy wants us to blame God for not giving us what we need, but what we need is him. In the wilderness, he gives us him. We can have him. And so what I've been learning is that in the wilderness, rather than blaming God, I'm learning to want God more than I want what I'm asking him for. And in those, 
you know, this whole journey for me, I've needed a lot of prayer. I've needed people to believe for me. And we don't really want to stay there. Like, I, I don't want to always be relying on other people's faith. But it happens. And when that happens, like, show up and ask for help. Because this is what this is for. This is why we're all here. Is to lean on one another. And so our invitation to you in this next 15 minutes is if you're not getting prayer, you're praying, you're interceding for people in your lives, we want everyone to be praying right now. Because this is important for everybody.